Welcome to Fine Art Fiona, a podcast which shares my conversations with the many artists, curators and collectors I meet on my art travels who, like me, have a passion for art. My name is Fiona McIntosh. Today's conversation is with artist Phil James, whose irreverent attitude to the delineation between high art and popular culture results in artworks which make you laugh. Our conversation takes place across Gadigal and Camaragal lands, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of both lands and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Phil James adds an endearing perspective to art history by blending ever so beautifully much revered cartoon figures and their familiar chaotic characteristics into old and often tired classical landscapes, religious scenes or portraits. His work upends the authority of tradition and offers an alternative to those monuments which are a testament to our time. Hi, Phil James. Welcome to Fine Art Fiona. Thanks so much for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. To come across your work for the first time usually evokes a wry smile, a belly laugh, or sometimes an incredulous like, you know, what the... With the utmost painterly care and consideration, you rejig the focus of historical religious paintings, landscapes, portraits, invariably ones which are reasonably tired and musty, by painting amongst them the cartoon characters or sci-fi figures of our childhood. SpongeBob SquarePants looming looming across the hills, Donald or Daffy Duck interfering with the crucifixion, the Virgin Mary cradling something other than the Holy Child, or even a Gainsborough-like portrait of a child, a man, brought into the 21st century in on-trend runners. It's a bit like adding a moustache to the Mona Lisa. Yeah, totally. I guess I have to ask, why? Uh, well, why not would be the, the obvious answer. I, I guess um, I always really enjoyed, well, I love humour. And yeah, I love art. And as you said, yeah, like uh, there's a lot of sort of love and consideration uh, in the approach to sort of defacing or improving uh, those images. But humor, I think, is just a really, yeah, it's a really valid emotion. Um, and I grew up with a, on a heavy sort of diet of satire, I guess, through Mad Magazine. And some of my art heroes are, um, come from a, a cartoon background and like your reference of the mustache on the Mona Lisa, you know, that whole sort of Dada movement and the, the sort of absurdity of art. Um, you know, growing up I used to do exactly that to like mum's Vogue magazines yeah. or Mode magazines, you know, draw a mustache and a stubble on, you know, Kate Moss or something and colour in a tooth, black in a tooth. Uh, it's just incredibly fun and it's amazing uh, how much you can transform an image <clears throat> just with a few simple marks. And it's hilarious. It is hilarious. <laughs> they, are, they are hilarious. They're very entertaining and they, you know, yeah. they do take you back when you see them, you know, in an exhibition space or something. But it, it's, it's defacing, I would say, is... Um, a pejorative term, which actually doesn't describe them, because you, mm. you, they are beautifully rendered and painted into the scene. That they actually look like this bizarre part of it. It's a bit like yanking history into a contemporary context and then putting these contemporary characters back in an historical context. 
they're beautifully created. So, so there is that wonderful art practice to them as opposed to disrespect or defacing. Yeah, I think the term defacing does connote a, a kind of disrespect and there's absolutely no disrespect there. It's definitely coming from a place of love and a place of huge respect for the images that I'm working on. Uh, they're, they're gorgeous. And strangely enough, most of them uh, have been made by artists that no one's ever heard of. And they're, they're stunning paintings. They really are. And so more than anything, actually, it's a sort of desire for me to bring these unknown artists, not that yeah, I'm the most highly regarded artist in the world or anything, but it's a nice way to um, yeah, show and give respect to these artists that I've never heard of and I'm sure most of my peers haven't either. Yeah, and give them some, uh, some relevance in a contemporary context. Yeah, a bit of time in the sun. Yeah. So there are some works, not all of them, but some that, you know, I mean, for a lot of people we wander through museums and we're looking at endless religious um, images. You know, they get a bit tired, a bit musty. At times they don't, yeah. the iconography is unknown, the symbolism is not relevant really anymore and it's like really, you know, what what meaning does this have for us these days, but you know, mm. there are times the, the gorgeous portrait of a of this young man in a beautiful you know silk outfit. He would have been such a dandy in his time. You add a, a bit of makeup to him and add some groovy sneakers to him, and you instantly understand. Yeah, I like the blue boy. The blue boy. You instantly understand what that portrait meant in that time. You know, you, so you you add another yeah. layer of of understanding and accessibility to those, to reading his, historical works. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, yeah, you can bring them bring them into the now and also just that, that sort of uh, cross sort of time dimensional update, I suppose. Uh, I mean, you know, fashion is such a weird sort of thing and in terms of something like the blue boy, you know, this this young sort of, Duke or, uh, yeah, pardon my ignorance, but I don't even know who, who the guy was. I think he was, yeah, probably the son of a Duke or something. Yeah. But, yeah, like you said, like a dandy kicking around in these, you know, wonderful silk robes, the, the, the cyclical nature of fashion. It's like, you know, maybe that'll come back as well, like Adam in the Ants or something and just got to put a fr- fresh pair of sneakers on him and he's ready to roll. Yeah, but then it also, you know, it's that high art is rendered in this sort of high art, you know, steeped in tradition of painting and art history. But the the way you've played with him is, you know, in his costume, he he suddenly looks, you know, young and groovy. So there is this um, blending of, you know, High art, so-called high art, and popular culture, low art. You know the delineation. Yeah, it's an artificial delineation, um, but there's a lovely blend of the two. Yeah, well, I, I'm a big fan of uh, lowbrow in inverted commas art, um, which is particularly big in uh, the American art scene, I guess, with that whole sort of counterculture painters like Robert Williams and et al. But these are all artists that have incredible skills, but they're considered lowbrow just because I guess the the iconography that they use. Um, so it's nice to sort of 
mash these two things together. I think the whole idea of sort of high and low brow art is really odd to me. Um, you know, why, why is one considered high and one considered low? I don't really get it. Uh, the mastery is equal. And so it's nice to sort of, you know, it's like a, a strange sort of painterly Zoom meeting where high meets low and you come out with something kind of warm. It's nice. In a way, it's a bit of a commentary on, I guess, what we generally, the general populace, what we revere, you know, what is important to us, yeah. what, what we give value to, what we aspire to, what is relevant and meaningful Absolutely. to us. Absolutely. Mm. And the two yeah. have to come together in that sense. Yeah, well, and, and that's the a thing that I that I really gravitate towards, sort of philosophically. Not that I've gone too deep on it. Is is that whole idea of absurdism? And I don't know. I I love art. It's it's my deep passion, and you know, I'll die doing it. Um, but I guess the the philosophy is of absurdism is uh, that sort of intrinsic human nature to attribute meaning to something where there is none which applies to all sort of things. It's, it's sort of in the eye of the beholder, I guess, what you hold dear and what you revere. And it's just nice to, you know, it's like, what, what does it all mean? Yeah. And it's, uh, I guess it's my own way of just sort of dealing with that. I guess it's kind of therapeutic for me, um, you yeah, know, not destroying these things but breaking them down and uh, – just and making them accessible, I think. I, I think the beauty of lowbrow art, and one of the only the few differences I can see between lowbrow and highbrow art is the sort of academia that's attached to it. Yep. Um, lowbrow, I think, really is more sort of art for the masses. Yeah. Yeah, it's easily accessible. What you see is what you get. Whereas this sort of highbrow notion of art is has a kind of inaccessibility to it as almost sort of bourgeois. Yeah, it becomes rare, rarefied and elitist. And actually, you know. Yeah. And, and I guess that's the thing that I'm interested in is how you, you generally, how, how art can be, whether it's low or highbrow, whatever, whether it's really out there or, or a little bit more obvious and accessible, how it actually connects with people on a, on a meaningful level and how people can see that art across the board has a relevance to their daily lives. That's something that, you know, that is of interest to me. Well, I think nostalgia is a really powerful thing and um, and that's that's something that I'm really sort of playing with, not really consciously because it's just sort of part of the fabric of who I am um, <clears throat> and I sort of make the things that I want to see. But, you know, I've, I've seen people that shows um, in the past like a five-year-old connecting with a painting and a, a 60-year-old connecting with a painting and they're both laughing or, yeah. you know, sort of thinking twice and that's that's a, a, a really valuable thing, I think. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned something about finding, you know, painters that none of us really know that may not have lasted the test of time in, in the, you know, the lineal history, art history textbooks. Um, yeah. Where do you find your, your, your the works that you play with? I imagine some of them are actual paintings. Some of them are probably prints. Um, yeah, most most of them are prints, and I think uh, well, I find most of them uh, at op shops or secondhand stores, which is one of my sort of 
happiest pastimes is sort of trolling for treasures. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, most of them are prints. I think in the sort of 60s and 70s they had a a bit of a revolution in print technology and it was a, a pretty big money spinner for a lot of artists back then just, you know, churning out reproductions. Um, and I love the idea that the, the thing that gives me the most sort of satisfaction actually is finding these images and, you know, at once st- I, I liked to think of the um, the past life of it as sort of like a discarded pet or something, you know, someone would have parted with, you know, good money to, to hang this on their wall at some point, someone's nana or parents or whatever, and then through one twist of fate or another sort of deceased estate or, you know, you see it every council cleanup, um, people just chucking stuff out and it's not on trend anymore or the colour palette's a bit weird or people are creeped out by it. They throw it out and I think that's really sad, you know. It would have given someone so much joy and it would have had pride of place in someone's living room or in their dining room and then the poor thing is just kicked out to the curb and it's all chipped and messed up. So it's nice to sort of give it a, yeah, a spit shine and put it back out into the world. Lovingly repurpose. Yeah. So you said that you, you you know, your heroes, your art heroes are the the masters in of cartooning, as in Mad Magazine, which I too did love, I must say. Yeah. How, how did you actually begin to blend the two? Where did you, had you set out to be an artist? Were you creating your own cartoons? How did you actually, you know, carve out? a practice that was, you know, as a professional artist and that you had your own sort of signature approach? Uh, well, that's, that's a, a kind of an interesting story actually because when I, when I graduated art school I was a printmaker, and, which I haven't done for a really long time. But uh, I started painting and I was painting a lot of sort of still life really, just contemporary still life like, donuts and Coke cans and sneakers and that sort of stuff. Um, And then I just had a really incredibly bad run of luck with shows falling through and sort of galleries closing. And so what I do now is actually really born out of frustration. Um, I hit a point years and years ago where I was like, oh, yeah, like, what do I have to do to, you know, what's going wrong, sort of the touch of death. Um, and I actually had a vintage print at home and I was living at Redfern in, at the time. Um, and I just said, and it was a, a sort of old Italian landscape. It was really beautiful, really sort of spare landscape. Uh, and I painted this UFO in it just, just for fun. Um, it was a completely unconscious thing and I thought, I was so frustrated with sort of art at the time, just the gallery system. Yeah. And it's like, you know what, I'm just going to take that out of it, <clears throat> take the economics of art out of it, and I'm going to stick this thing to a wall. As in a, as in a wall outside somewhere? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I'll, I'll just make it for the pure love of the game. Uh, and so that's what I started doing, and strangely enough, it uh, really struck a nerve. And I kept doing it. Yeah. How did you know it struck a nerve? It's that were you spying on people walking past or? Uh, well, people 
would sort of react to it and uh, I had a few things like people would leave chalk comments oh, sort of on the wall yep. like, I love this, and this was pre-Instagram and social media. Yep. And I'd stick them on the way. So I used to work in Paddington and so the, the walk from Redfern to Paddington, I'd sort of find nooks and crannies and it was just an extension of my living room, I guess. I was just sort of decorating my walk, uh, walk to work. And so I'd leave them up and each morning and afternoon I'd pass them and people would leave sort of comments and it was really cool or steal them and and then someone would leave a comment over the empty sort of glue frame like, you know, who took this or sad face. Um, it was really cool. Yeah, that is. It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Genuine responses, <clears throat> positive responses. And then Yeah. And, and then and then what happened? Then how did you take it to the next level? Uh well that's a cool story as well, actually. Um I had it after all this sort of bad luck, I had a, a really incredible uh lucky thing that also kind of turned a bit funny after a while, but um at the time Ray Hughes Gallery was around. Uh, and I always used to walk past that. And, you know, that yeah. was a, such a beautiful space yeah. and just a great institution. Uh, and there was an alleyway behind there and I stuck a, a work to the wall there one day and the following day or something I was walking past and there was something sticking out of the frame. I was like, oh, what's that? And I went and had a closer inspection. It was a business card. Um. I was like, oh, okay, Evan Hughes. Like, huh. That's interesting. All right, cool. That- I'll um I'll give him a call. So I called Evan and he at the time had a gallery upstairs yes. above Ray's. Yeah. Um he was like, Hey, yeah, I really like your work. I was wondering if you'd be interested in having a chat, possibly doing a show. Like Hell yeah. Yeah, Let's yeah. That's fantastic. That is wonderful yeah. that you can have those yeah. uh, anonymous but public conversations around a, a work. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really nice thing. And I, I guess I'm not sure how it would work today in you know the social media age, but it was a really nice, um, really kind of intimate and engaging sort of thing, like as opposed to sort of double tapping something, people would actually take the time to to write something yeah. or leave something yeah. um, just to sort of let you know you're doing something good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. extremely fulfilling and, and actually, it, you know, despite all those sort of hardships, for want of a better term, that I'd experienced before, it kind of forced me to start making things that were actually more true to myself. Um, yeah, a bit of a sort of cheeky nature and taking the piss mm-hmm. and but also doing it lovingly and it, it worked mm. and it was, yeah, a kind of a, a beautiful hard lesson. Mm. I mean, you've obviously always been committed to an art practice and committed to a career as an artist. You, you see yourself as an yeah. artist. But to have that sort of... Um, recognition, I imagine, you know, it it it, um, it uh, adds a level of confidence and it adds a level of um, uh, yeah, you know, desire to keep going to have that yeah, recognition. Absolutely. I mean, if you if you sort of engage with people, I mean, the the sort of the way that I love 
you know, the things that, you know, like Mad Magazine, for example, or Looney Tunes cartoons, if, you know, they, they give me fulfilment and it's, it's, they're really lovely. And so the, the idea that something that you make can give someone else, you know, that kind of excitement is wonderful. Like selling a work, like when someone buys a work and they're not cheap. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's, that's incredible, man. It's, uh, it's a really, it's, it's a hard feeling to describe, but it's, it's very fulfilling and humbling and, but it also like drives you to, yeah. So it's a pat on the back. Yeah. It implies a level of commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Warm hug. Absolutely. So, so that show with Evan, was that sort of the impetus then for things like, um, uh, applying to the Brett Whiteley Travelling Arts Scholarship, submitting works to the Sulman Prize, that sort of thing, because you have then become finalists in, in you know, what are highly regarded yeah. art prizes. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the the Brett Whiteley, I was in a couple of times before I started doing this type of work, um, but certainly after. Uh, it had been as a long time between drinks, I guess, uh, from that to sort of establishing this new sort of type of work that I was making. Yeah, I think sort of the more it sort of, I mean, before I was in the Sulman for the first time, I would have entered it probably seven or eight times previously and just no dice. Right. But yeah, it's one of those things, I guess, if you, the the longer you persevere and the more you put things out there and you do, you know, kick a few little goals and get a bit more recognition, I suppose, um, it becomes a bit easier for people to digest. It, it's it's hard being an artist. It's really hard. Yeah. yeah it's, in, it's incredibly difficult. It takes a, a really long time. I do admire you know, the dedication and the commitment that artists have to their practice. And, you know, everything else sort of fills in the gaps to be able to, you know, live. But Yeah, takes a lot of grit. Yeah. I was going to say there have been champions of your work along the way, your art colleagues, um, some curators. You know, there was a beautiful book that was published of your work. You know, so they've yeah, been yeah through Alaska yeah, projects yeah which was yep. a fantastic initiative and yeah I've always been really fortunate um, I've always had you know at least one or two people in my corner that have yeah you can't please everyone all the time um, but I think the you know an important thing sort of in art is like you were saying like if you can get just one or two people that really dig what you're doing and sort of champion your work then. Yeah, you're on the right path. Right. Um, it's an incredibly personal sort of thing, you know. Like I'm, you know, I make the work that I want to make, and I know not everyone is going to enjoy it or take it seriously or whatever, and that's okay. I mean, I'm not sort of trying to please everybody. I try and please myself more than anything. And just the law of averages, I guess. The more exposure you get, the more people that you will find, even if it's one in one hundred that enjoy your work, then that's a pretty solid audience. Mm, yeah, that's not bad. So then you, yeah. you, did, you went to China with a, with a, as a residency. At what stage in your career, where, did, where does that fit in? Because, that, I mean, that's a pretty uh, big thing. 
that was that was huge and that that was a pretty cool story too actually um so that was maybe oh, that was 2010 so i guess it was a year or two after the show with ray mm-hmm. there's a there's a cool ending to that story actually which i'll get back to but i, I went to art school with guy Maestri. Yep, he's a good friend and at the time i was couch surfing at his place in surrey hills and he was going on this residency uh and there were 10 people and apparently one of the artists had dropped out i'm not sure yeah i remember it so clearly he was sitting at his little sort of study desk with the computer and the email had come through that someone had dropped out he was like hey man i'll i'll put your name forward i was like yeah cool i was just lying on his couch go for it and then about 20 minutes later i i still remember him so clearly just spinning around in his chair he was like phil james you're coming to China. That's fantastic. Like, what? <clears throat> it was insane. That, that was a life-changing trip. Uh, that was just amazing. And so, yeah, tell us a bit about tell us a bit about the whole journey and the whole project. Who did you go with? Uh, Where did you go? What did you do? Oh, well, we, uh, Catherine Kroll had organised the trip and she spends a lot of time in China. She's, she's awesome. Um, uh, through DFAD, it was the Year of Australian Culture in China. And so there was Guido, Fiona Foley, Francis Bell Parker, Peter Gardner, uh, Zhu Xiaoping, and China de la Vega. Yes. Um, and, yeah, we travelled extensively through China. I've seen more of, a chi- of China than I have of Australia now. How long were you there? Uh, we were there, I think it was... Almost a month. Okay. It was a it was a long trip. It was crazy, but yeah, went everywhere. Um, you know, did some art worship uh, workshops with some kids in uh, Sichuan province, and they just experienced the earthquake uh-huh. there, and yeah, incredible loss and devastation. The streets mm-hmm. were just rubble, and but yeah, amazingly resilient people, and so um, so welcoming. Mm-hmm. It was just incredible. Um, and then it culminated with, was it, uh, I think it was more than a month, but it culminated in a residency at the Redgate uh, Studios in Beijing where we all made work and then had an exhibition at the Redgate Gallery, which is this incredible, uh, it's the only intact Ming Dynasty watchtower and it's just an incredible space. It's mind-blowing. Brian's a, an amazing man and, yeah, I mean, it's the most incredible exhibition space I've ever shown. And just historically, it's like, what? Yeah. It's nuts. Like, yeah, hundreds of years old. And were you doing um, work, you know, similar to what we've described here, you know, vintage style, uh, historical style prints overlaid with um, contemporary cartoon characters? Yeah. um, It was kind of, I did one painting sort of like that. There was a kind of looked like a painting that you'd find in a, Chinese restaurant, right. I guess, like a really funny sort of big waterfall yeah. thing. Um, there's a huge amount of Chinese propaganda imagery there. A lot of the work that I made, or some of it anyway, they weren't able to show just for fear of it being shut down, I guess, the party. Because um, I made a bust of um, the chairman, Chairman Mao, in the style of The Simpsons. Ah. And they they wouldn't. They wanted to show it, but they weren't. They couldn't show it for fear of being shut down. I mean, which I totally understand. Um, but uh, yeah, you can't 
take the piss out of the chairman. Yes, that's true. Uh, yes, I, I imagine some of those characters would be completely um, offensive to to yeah. upper echelons of you know the Chinese political fraternity. And yeah, a lot of them are just foreign to them as well. The Simpsons. I mean, they they don't they don't show the Simpsons there. It's just not done. Um, so a lot of my sort of references, I guess, would yeah just go right over their heads. Yeah, the kids would have loved it, I imagine. These wacky characters and these, you know, these ultimately they're very simple shapes and extraordinary colors, and you know, they do. Yeah, they can be so expressive. Yeah, I ended up making a lot of sort of ink drawings and a, a couple of paintings on on vintage works. Um, yeah, just a fascinating, fascinating country. Yeah. Uh, I started a love affair with it. Actually, I've been I've returned probably seven times. Okay. Uh, since. Uh, and have you shown in China since? Have you have you gone back to Redgate Gallery? Uh no, no, I haven't. Um, I'm not sure Redgate even exists anymore. Okay. I think it may have recently, I think Brian may have retired. I mm-hmm. could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started going back there to Jingdezhen, China, Della Vega, who was on the trip. She was a real sort of independent spirit and she, she wandered off at some stage and just explored the country by herself and found, not found, but stumbled upon this city, Jingdezhen, Jingdezhen. Uh, which is the ceramic capital of China. Uh-huh. Um, uh, they call it the cradle of China, and it's the uh, the porcelain center of China. And I've been there quite a few times since to make ceramic work. Yeah, because you do actually do three three dimensional pieces. You do do some sculpture and yeah, sculpture is probably one of my favorite things to do. It's certainly a nice break from painting, and it's nice just to. Uh, Think in the round, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, commercially in Australia, I think it's a bit of a tough sell, but <clears throat> yeah, I'd, I'd have a lot of enjoyment making sculpture. If I get, I'd, I'll do more of it happily, and um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful way to work. I know, I know some of your um, sculptural pieces, like the wonderful one that's in the Win Prize at the Art Gallery of New South Wales for twenty twenty one, which is based on. The um, Italian uh, 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 continuous, yeah, continuo. yeah, Testa di Mussolini, yeah. uh, Profilo Continuo, yeah. Renato Bertelli's. I, I mean, that is just an yeah. extraordinary piece, and yeah. your your piece Thank is you. just fabulous. That yellow, and you look at it again, and mm. it is definitely, you know, one of those fabulous characters. A continuous portrait of Bart. Yeah, that shiny surface. It kind of it's sort of. Uh, uh, that's that's the beauty of sculpture too. You can sort of, depending on the materials and the finish, you can. I mean, it sort of seems like it's spinning just because it's such high gloss. Yeah. And, um. You know, just that, but also the static nature of it. It's it's really cool. I remember seeing that um that continuous profile or picture of it anyway when I was a kid, and it stuck with me ever since. And I think that's a great sort of you know powerful thing about art. There's still works that I think about that I was exposed to as a child that just seemed to sort of occupy a part of your brain. You just can't let go of it. And I imagine that particular continuous portrait, the the, um, Testa di Mussolini, actually sort of fits with your iconography around mass-produced idols because I gather Mussolini 
loved it and approved it as an official portrait and it's just been mass-produced across a variety of medium, you know, terracotta, wood, aluminium, as opposed to this rarefied, one-off, glorified sort of portrait. And it sort of sits with these sorts of characters that you choose. Yeah, well, that's the um, that's the the same thing in China with um, <clears throat> with Mao, which is why I, I did him as a Simpsons character, is because you see that proliferation um, of an image, and it's something that he was against as well. It's like the the, um, the contradictory sort of nature of that is really interesting. It's like you've sort of you've become Mickey Mouse, <clears throat> even though that's sort of public enemy number one. But on the one hand, in the art world, mass production is deemed to devalue a work. But if you're a bit of a megalomaniac, you know, mass production enhances adulation. Yes, that's that's the king. Yeah. So that's sort of what they're after. Every house should have one. Yeah. So, and then you've dealt with other megalomaniacs that you did a quite a series of um, Donald Trump. Was that was that was that leading up to the election? Uh, I think he was president at the time, but that was my first uh, collaboration with Polly Boland. Ah, okay. Um, and so that that was a portrait she did of him. She's such a beast. Um, so she she'd made that portrait of him. I think in Trump Towers, sort of back in the day, it was a for an article. I think in the um, maybe the New York Times or like a, a big sort of magazine over there. Um. <clears throat> I've never felt so sort of I don't know, disgusted painting on someone. Yeah, sometimes you 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 like it, it's important to sort of address megalomaniacs, but also in a lot of respects, you sort of don't want to give them any oxygen. Yeah. It kind of felt a little bit dirty, but yeah. So let's then move on into some of the collaborations that you've done, and obviously most recently with Polly Borland and an exhibition that. Yeah. Is opening in Melbourne, unfortunately, during COVID lockdown very soon. Yep. But you had done a collaboration with a fashion label beforehand or a while ago with Romance Was Born. Do you want to yeah. chat a bit about collaborations and what it is to work with other creatives to... Yeah, well, the, the collaboration with Romance, that's a sort of a collaboration in inverted commas, I suppose, because at the time they were doing a, um, a, a series or a fashion, I mean, a, a collection that I think was called Little Lord Fauntleroy. And as it happened, uh, I'd I'd made that image and it was a postcard that uh, I think Avant Card, they used to do those sort of things, which, again, before social media, that was kind of one way to sort of get some uh, you know, exposure and proliferation, I suppose. <clears throat> I've still got a box of them downstairs. Um and they were at Alaska Projects and they stumbled across it and thought it'd be a, a cool sort of addition to that collection. Mm-hmm. So uh, in terms of it, that wasn't super collaborative as such, I guess. We, we didn't really work together, but they used that image as part of their collection. Okay. Um, and used it beautifully. They're amazing. That was actually really, yeah, it's, I, I love fashion. Uh, I love fashion designers. I think they're, as I said, sort of raised from a steady died of Vogue magazine yeah. and uh, so that was just a cool thing to do um, and I have enormous respect for them as a label. So then, so then, yes, I think collaborations are different as opposed to licensing or using an image. Um, so so how did the collaboration then with Polly Borland come about and how does that 
How did it work as a collaboration? Uh, it came about, uh, well, we were both fans of each other's work on social media and we'd message each other now and again just, yeah, like, hey, love your work. He's very cool. And That's great to have that support from your peers, you know, even just the odd yeah. comment rather than just a double click to actually take the time to acknowledge and to, you know, share what you think. Yeah, it's an, it's an incredible thing when, when someone messages you or you message someone and they reply and, you know, that you, you know, have huge respect for. If someone, you know, in another country or whatever, like someone huge is like, hey, man, love your work, and they actually reply, it's like, whoa, cool. You feel this, like, strange connection, like, oh, my God, they spoke to me. Yeah. So just to uh, put a bit of context, so Polly Borland is a highly regarded Australian photographer widely collected and critiqued and exhibited and is actually, I guess, more widely known for a um, fabulous portrait she did of the Queen in the early 2000s. And she was actually commissioned by Buckingham Palace to do it. And it's an unusual portrait for the Queen because... That's raw. Yeah. She looks very approachable and yet in this wonderful sort of glittery, sparkly sort of disco granny sort of um, feel. It's a it's a beautifully engaging, yeah. accessible portrait of her. Yeah, I think it was made for her Silver Jubilee, actually, which is a huge, huge deal um, for Polly. Yeah, and she, and she lives now in L.A., I think. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. So there you yeah. go, big artist living overseas who, who sends you a message on yeah. Insta saying, I love your work. Yeah. Well, I think I slid in her DMs first, maybe. Like, oh, I love your work, yeah. She's so rock and roll. She's she's, she's amazing. Uh, so as luck would have it, uh, she was in a group show that I was in also at Gallery Pom Pom in Chippendale. Yep. Um, and she happened to be in town at the time and she was at the opening uh, when we could go to openings. It was yeah, beautiful time. Uh, and, yeah, we ended up chatting for a while and, Got along really well, and um, I'm not sure how it actually happened, but by the end of the night, we'd agreed that we should do something together. And she's so humble and approachable, like her photographs. I mean, that's that's her. That's how she is, and I guess that's how she photographs people or what she brings out of them. She was like, you know, go through my archives, and if there's something there, you you know, you you see. Maybe we can do something. I was like, oh, God, I don't even know where to start with your archives. Like, why don't you send me something? I'm happy to work on anything you've got. Uh, and she sent me those queen portraits. When I unrolled them, I nearly squealed. It's like, whoa, like this is an iconic portrait. And it's the queen. It's like, what? Um so it's one of those things, it's like, what do I do to that? Like, it's, it's perfect. So the, um, the idea was, as your, your practice has been, to actually blend other characters or other images or other symbols onto an existing work. And the existing work was yeah. Polly's and you would be doing your, your own sort of thing over the top. Yeah. Yeah, sort of intervention. Yep. Yeah. Um, and Polly's really wonderful. Uh, you, know, she, you know, she's she's like, don't. Don't respect the image, you know, don't be afraid of the image. Just She's like, I love your painting. At the time I was sort of doing some larger scale paintings just of my own sort of things, not an intervention. Um, she was like, I really love those. Just paint on it, like use it as a canvas. 
like, well, that's almost impossible. It's like, how do you ignore that, that sort of, that base? It's Her Majesty the Queen staring at you. Um, <clears throat> but that was really fun. So there were, there were two of those and two of the, the Donald Trump ones, and it was, it was a, a really wonderful exercise. Uh, and that was, I guess, the, the, the start of you know, doing something bigger together. Right, right. Which was really great. Well, I, I really look forward to seeing that. Unfortunately, I think it will only be available online for the time being until we're all, yeah, it seems, you know, seems that the way. restrictions lift. But that's a that's a fabulous project to work on. You you and I first met yeah. um, a couple of years ago through the Art Incubator program, which is a phil- yes. philanthropic program which champions sort of selected, invited artists and supports and promotes their careers and practice. Uh, how's that yep. program, what's that been like being a part of that program and how's that assisted you? That has been <clears throat> huge for me. Um, that's probably one of the best things that's ever happened to me in terms of you know, my career and the support, um, the opportunities that it's afforded. Uh, I was in a little bit of the wilderness, I guess. I don't know. I always think I'm sort of in, a little bit in the wilderness. But I met them. I, I used to do a bit of work for Tony Albert. Um, and so and he's a really generous fellow. Um, Wonderful Australian artist, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's amazing and just a great guy. Um, and so I met them through him. They were a group of people coming to his studio and he generously said, oh, why don't you bring some of your work in and they can have a look. And that's that's how I met Teresa and Andre, which became the the opportunity to, to be a part of Art Incubate. Teresa and Andre are just huge lovers of art and huge supporters of art and particularly emerging artists, um, which I think is so incredibly valuable. Um, you know, you gotta you gotta start somewhere. Um and so the support that they provide in giving you money towards making a show, um, part of that show will go into a collection and that show will be exhibited at an established gallery. That's that's huge. I mean it's a huge foot in the door. And my show was with Chalk Horse Gallery, who I'm now uh represented by in Sydney and run by great friends. Um, and it's just ongoing. Now I'm in Cholo Street Studios where I met you, mm-hmm. I believe. Yes. Um, and yeah, just getting studio space in Sydney is incredibly difficult, somewhere to make the work, let alone to exhibit it. Um, and yeah, I, I had that opportunity, I think it was around six years ago and I'm still fully supported by them, um, they're they're awesome. They're uh, very nurturing. Yeah, yeah. I can't sort of speak highly enough about them. Yeah, it is a fantastic program, and it is extraordinary how people who start buying and then it becomes collecting, and then they can see a lot more about where the pitfalls are for artists and how I mean you've talked yeah. about them how and how you how hard it is to establish a career how hard it is to 
break into a commercial gallery, to be to be um, break into the sort of the art scene where you know your average of you know one in a hundred increases to you know ten in a hundred. You know how you actually yeah. how you actually gain some sort of respected profile. Mm. Yeah, on, on your own terms. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the hard things about art school, uh, about being an artist. I mean, you you leave and you have all manner of sort of professional practice and whatnot. But when you leave, it's, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. It's like you've got no boss, you've got no manager, you've got no sort of internships or yeah. there's no guidebook. Yeah. Everyone's experience is completely their own. Yeah. Um, you know, I often get asked, sort of, you know, how do you, how do you get a start? And my experience is, you know, completely different to, you know, it's not going to work for someone else, yeah. um, except for maybe perseverance. But yeah, there's there's the wild west out there yeah. too. You know, there's there's no rules and there's no sort of union or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's pretty full on, but you just keep going, which you keep going, man, and and yeah. and we're grateful for that. So, what's next for you? Uh, uh well, I've got a well, I've got this show with Nick uh, at the end of this month, um, Nicholas Thompson Gallery in Melbourne. Nicholas Thompson Gallery, yep. yeah, and he he's amazing. He, I, I feel really fortunate to be part of his stable, uh, and then I'll do a solo with. Uh, Chalk Horse Gallery next year yep, in East Sydney. Yep, and yeah, uh, and that's good having those two galleries. It's sort of one solo a year, and I suppose there'll be a, hopefully a few group shows in between and enter the odd prize. Yes, and just keep going. Roll the dice. Keep going. Just keep yeah, going. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I'm always making things anyway. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll just keep making and. Uh, yeah, keep, put a show together and keep having fun. Thankfully, get to exhibit it. Yeah, yeah, keep, keep having, having fun. fun. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Phil James, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed yeah. learning more about your work and uh, and more about you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Fiona. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're very easy to talk to. Pleasure. You'll love discovering Phil James's work. You can find links for Phil James on our show notes. And for information on other episodes, go to our Instagram page, Fine Art Fiona. Conversations on the Fine Art Fiona podcast are created by Fiona McIntosh and produced by Simon Grant. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>